0: Learn all about investing in real estate in Seattle, Washington, with a combination of real estate financial planning and modeling with numbers specific to Seattle, plus syndicated, more generalized recordings of live and pre-recorded real estate investing classes, not all of them specific to Seattle. Be sure to stay tuned after the podcast for a message from our sponsors. Well, good morning and welcome everyone. I am James Orr, and today we have a a really interesting class, a class I've not really seen anyone teach to real estate investors before. its uh, I think it's going to be eye-opening to a lot of folks, and so we're going to jump right in, but today we're going to go over how much should you put down when buying rental properties, and specifically the returns for various down payments. So let's jump right into it, and I'll kind of explain what I'm talking about as we go. Okay. So before we get into like the meat of the presentation, I want to kind of just admit to you that we're not just talking about down payments. What we're really talking about is the total cost to close. So the down payment that you're putting down plus the total amount that you have to close. And if I were to do this presentation again, I didn't want to kind of uh, muddy the waters with getting into these discussions of reserves and cumulative negative cash flow. But really, if I do this at a more advanced level, and I probably should do an advanced version of this, but I want to give you the basic framework of this first, I really should do this class where I'm talking about the total cost to close plus the reserves plus any cumulative negative cash flow you anticipate having on that property that you've set aside to make the overall investment much more conservative. okay? Uh, we've talked about this idea in previous classes. I probably need to do an entire class just on this topic. But the idea is, let's say you have negative $200 a month in cash flow on a property that you're considering buying. You know, our our market has really high prices right now, really high interest rates, uh, rents are lagging a little bit, and even if you apply all the different ADH strategies that we have for improving cash flow, in some markets you're going to struggle to come up with a property that has positive cash flow unless you put a lot down. And so you may decide hey, look, instead of putting, I don't know, 20% more down in order to get this property to have positive cash flow, I might choose to set aside the amount of negative cash flow I'm going to have to cover me through when I realistically think that I'm not going to have negative cash flow anymore. And so what you do is you say this, okay, uh, I've got negative $200 a month in cash flow on this property I'm considering buying. So over the course of the first year, I've negative 200 times 12, which is about $2,400. However, Next year, I think rents are going to go up about 3% or so, and maybe that's about $50. bucks. i am going to make the math really easy and just use $50. So rents are going to go up by about $50, which means my cash flow is not going to be negative $200 a month in year two. It's going to be 150 And I'm doing some really oversimplified math. Yes, you want to do the actual math to do this, but I'm just kind of doing some really rough math to show you exactly how this works. So uh, $200 a month negative in year one. Now, because rents went up $50, you have about negative $150 in year two, which is about $1,800 negative cash flow. In year three, rents go up again a little bit, about 3%, which means about $50 a month. In this case, for example, to make the math easier. So instead of having negative $150 a month, in cash flow in year three. Now you only have negative 100. You do that. So negative 100 times 12 months is about $1,200. The next year, rents go up a little bit more, you have $50 a month negative. So that's about $600 for the year in negative cash flow. And then after that, when rents go up again, a little tiny bit, you have you know $50 more in rent, you don't have negative cash flow anymore. And so we could look at the next few years and say, well, in year one, we had negative 2,400. In year two, we had negative 1,800. In year three, we had negative 1,200. In year four, we had negative 600. And if we add all those together, which I probably should do that because I've used this example several times, but you know, if you go add all those together, maybe it's $6,000. I don't know exactly how much it is. You add them all up and find out how much it is. And so if you say to yourself, look, I have this negative $200 a month in cash flow. If rents go up just the small 3% per year for the next, whatever that is, five years, the, the chance of me having negative cash flow after five years is really low. So I could take $6,000, set it aside in addition to my reserves, knowing that that will help cover any negative cash flow I might have on this property for the reasonable future that I see with having rents go up a tiny bit each year. Now, with that being said, do rents always go up? No, they do not. You know, is it possible you have a tenant in there and the, uh, the, you know, in order to keep the tenant in there, you don't raise the rent $50? Sure. And so it's only $25. If If you want to be more conservative about this, set more aside. But the idea is it'll make you much more conservative, much safer to set aside the reserves you need. And then in addition to that, counting up the cumulative. the the additive total of the amount of negative cash flow you're likely to have until you get to the point where it's likely to be positive. And you can look at this in the world's greatest real estate deal analysis spreadsheet. Just go download the spreadsheet, realestatefinancialplanner.com forward slash spreadsheet. And you can look at this in the override section. It'll show you the cumulative negative cash flow you have on this property over whatever time period it is, and then set aside that money. Will it protect you 100%? No. Will it make you much safer than not doing this? absolutely and that's the idea is i want to see you stay in the game i want to see you be successful over a long period of time not just buy as many properties as you can and then when you have some type of downturn you've got these you know alligator type properties that you have negative cash flow on and you're unable to hold through the down period okay so before i get into today's class we're talking not really just about down payment what we're really talking about is total cost of close plus reserves plus those cumulative negative cash flow numbers but now that I've gotten said that, I'm telling you, I only use down payment to do the charts I'm doing today because I wanted to keep it simple and not mess it all up with all the reserves and total cost of to close and, and the cumulative negative cash flow part. So in the future, I probably should do all of them together. Okay, that being said. So the question is this, how much should you put down when buying rental properties? And I think for a lot of real estate investors, it's, well, how much do I have to put down? But if you have a lot to put down, it becomes a really interesting question. It becomes a question of, you know, what is optimal? What is going to be the best, the best amount to put down? And, and part of you start thinking about this in terms of, well, what's my overall return going to be on the amount that I have to put down, okay? So when you start thinking about this, here are some considerations. If you're going to do like a nomad strategy or house hacker strategy where you're moving into the property, and then you're ultimately going to use that property that you live in as an investment, whether that's nomading where you live in there for a year and then you convert it to a rental after a year, or house hacking where you're buying a property where you could rent out part of it, either renting rooms or you buy a duplex, triplex, or fourplex, and you're able to rent out the other units, like whatever strategy you're doing, where you're doing as owner-occupant, owner-occupant interest rates are better than non-owner-occupant interest rates and significantly better. So if you're going to move into a property and live there, the interest rate you're going to get from a lender for putting the same amount down is going to be better than if you put the same amount down as a non-owner occupant. If you bought it as an investment property where you did not plan to move in. So imagine you're putting 20% down on the property. The interest rate you get for putting 20% down if you were moving into the property is better than if you are putting 20% down and not moving into the property and buying it as an investment. So there's an advantage to move in in terms of interest rates. And we're going to show you some charts. Related to that here in a second, okay? In addition to that, the percentage down payment you put down can have a significant impact on your interest rate as well. And this, I think, makes sense to a lot of people. If you put only 5% down, the interest rate's probably gonna be higher than uh, someone who puts 20% down. And why? I think one of the reasons why is there's added risk to the lender. And the lender says, hey, look, for this added risk, I want a higher return on my money. Because there's a chance, a better chance, that you are gonna be foreclosed on. That you're not gonna make the payments, you're gonna walk away from the property and that you're gonna do it. I mean, just think about it from a, a very practical perspective. Think about it from your own perspective. If you put nothing into a deal, if you put nothing down in the property, you have nothing to lose, except your credit score and reputation by walking away from the property. You know, so I think a lot of folks are like, I have nothing, I have no money invested in this deal. If I walk away, I didn't lose any money. I just don't have the property anymore. And yeah, I got bad credit but maybe I didn't have good credit to begin with, right? So the thought is you put 20% down, now you're much less likely to walk away from the property. And from the lender's perspective, they have a cushion of equity where if you walk away, they could sell the property even at a discount and probably get all their money back or most of their money back. And that's why they like you putting 20% down, okay? So- Whether you decide to own or occupy or you don't own or occupy and you buy an investor property, the interest rates vary based on that. And the amount you put down percentage-wise impacts the interest rate as well. Now, some returns, remember there's four returns when we buy investor property plus reserves, but there are four primary returns when we buy investor properties. We talk about this when we talk about my return quadrants. Appreciation. The tendency for property values to increase over time. That's what appreciation is. The tendency for property values to increase over time. Cash flow, the amount of cash flow you have. You take all the income on the property minus all the expenses on the property. What's left over is your cash flow. So the cash flow on the property, your debt pay down, how much you're paying down on the loan with each payment that you make over that whatever time period you're measuring. And then finally, the tax benefits of owning that rental property, what we like to call cash flow from depreciation. It's really your depreciation benefit times your tax rate tells you approximately how much you're getting back in taxes by owning that rental property. Okay, so you have all four areas of return. Now, what's interesting is if you think about how many dollars of appreciation you got, you know how much, how many, how much in dollars the property went up in value, or how many dollars in cash flow you got for the year, or how many dollars you paid down on the loan, or how many dollars you got back in terms of cash flow from depreciation. Some of those returns change depending on how much you put down. For example, if you put more down, you tend to have more cash flow. Think about it from the extreme. If you put nothing down on a property, your cash flow is going to be lower than if you put down 100% and you bought the property all cash. Right? Just look at the extreme example of that. Can you see that when you have When you put nothing down on a property, the amount you're going to get in cash flow is going to be lower. It's going to be a smaller dollar amount than if you put 100% down your property. Now, I'm not talking about the return on investment. I'm talking about the dollar amount of the return. There's no division by how much you had to put down. We're going to talk about that in a minute, okay? So for now, realize that some of these dollar amount returns change depending on how much you put down. For example, cash flow would change. Now, what about appreciation? does the amount that the property goes up in value change depending on how much you put down? The answer is no. If you go buy a $400,000 property and it goes up 3% in that year, it went up $12,000. It doesn't matter if you put nothing down, it still went up $12,000. Or if you put $400,000 down, it still went up $12,000. So the dollar amount, the dollar amount of return stays the same no matter how much you put up for appreciation. But for cash flow, it changes based on how much you put up. It also changes how much debt you pay down. And think of the extreme example. If you, have a, if you put nothing down, the amount you're paying down on debt is a certain amount. If you put 100% down where you, where you have no loan at all, the amount you put down is zero. So the more you put down, the less your debt pay down tends to be. There's some exceptions, whether you do 30-year loan or 15-year loan. But if you're doing the same term of loan, then that's the same. It makes a sense. It's 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 what I'm talking about here. Okay, we're doing comparison. Same loan term to loan term. Loan term. Okay, and finally, your depreciation benefit. Your depreciation benefit stays the same in terms of dollars whether you put 100 percent down or zero down. You still get the same tax benefits whether you put nothing down or you put 100 percent down uh, when you buy a property. Okay, so what's interesting though, as I as I hinted at even if the dollars stay the same, even if the amount of appreciation you got is always $12,000 as an example, the return on investment would change depending on how much you put down. So now you're talking about return on investment is the dollar amount you earned divided by how much you put down in order to get that. Well, if you put almost nothing down, the return you get with $12,000 on the top and a zero on the bottom is basically infinite. If you put a really, really small amount down, the return is going to be really, really high because maybe you put, maybe you're getting $12,000 in return from appreciation and you only have $1,000 in the deal. Well, that's a really, really good, very high return on investment number. But what if you had to put the $400,000 down in order to get that $12,000 in return from appreciation? Well, now you only have a 3% return on investment. So your return on investment goes down. So even if the dollar stayed the same, the amount you have to put down affects the return on investment and the same holds true for return on equity, which I'm not going to cover in today's presentation. Okay. But these returns vary depending on how much you put down. So the question is, you know, how much should I put down? Well, we're going to talk about that today. I'm going to show you how these returns vary on a single property. And I'll just point out here that... um, When I did this class initially, this was not the first time I've taught this class, but Matt Weaver with Excel Financial Group provided the mortgage quotes I used to create the original versions of the following charts. However, I've since estimated to make the changes for our current interest rate environment. These charts would look different during different times. So if you really wanted to recreate the charts I've created here, you will want to go through and update the charts with your latest data from your mortgage broker. And most mortgage brokers do not like sitting on the phone with you while you go through and ask them for, you know, 20 different quotes on 20 different down payments. Okay. Some will. Most don't like it. Just a lot of work. Okay. With that being said, let's take a look at some charts. Because I love my some charts. All right. So this is a chart showing you the effective interest rates for a variety of different down payment amounts for owner-occupant, and for non-owner-occupant. So I'm going to break down what's going on here. So first of all, what is effective interest rate? An effective interest rate to me means it's the interest rate, plus if they have some type of monthly PMI, I add that to the interest rate so that it takes into account the interest rate you're paying, plus the rate you're getting for PMI. So it does take into account PMI if you have PMI on this thing. PMI is private mortgage insurance. So it's it's the extra insurance you pay to protect the lender in case you default. And we usually have that if you put less than 20% down to buy a property, okay? So effective interest rate is the interest rate with PMI in there. And, and we've we've plotted these by down payment. So on the left-hand side is 0% down. These are our nothing down loan programs. And then we increase until we get to the point where we have 100% down, which, There is no 100% down interest rate because you don't have a loan at 100%. So that's why there's no data here for 100%, okay? The red line are your owner-occupant rates. Your blue line are your investor or your non-owner-occupant rates. And the first thing I want to point out, as I discussed on the previous slide, is the non-owner-occupant rates are all higher than the owner-occupant rates by quite a bit. There's a pretty good gap between all of these, and the gap is not universal, meaning that sometimes for a certain down payment, for example, this 15% down payment loan, the gap looks, just visually, looks larger to me than the gap between a 30% down loan. So sometimes the difference between owner-occupant loan and a non-owner-occupant loan is greater than other times, another way of thinking about that, okay? And you'll also notice that we don't have any less than 15% down non-owner-occupant loans because we're talking about traditional financing or not anything creative or, or owner financing or something like that, okay? So these are traditional loans. So you'll notice that the lowest down payment we have for non-owner-occupant is this 15% down one, all right? So let's go over and look at this thing. So we basically have on the on the owner-occupant one, we've got two nothing-down loan programs. I plotted USDA and VA. And I think VA is the lower one. Hard for me to tell. Oops. Yeah, I can't quite tell. So I think VA is the lower one of the two though. And so you can see the difference in the rates for these nothing down ones. And what's interesting is the nothing down ones look like they're even better rates than the ones with low down payment. Partially because the VA one especially has a funding fee. And so instead of paying monthly PMI, you're paying the fee upfront as a funding fee. Okay. All right, so we've got these two nothing down loan programs. Then we bounce up here to the 3% down conventional loan program, which you can see where it is right there. And then the next one is this 3.5% down FHA loan. And so that one, as of right now, when I got these quotes, that was a little tiny bit lower than the conventional one with PMI. And the FHA one had their PMI added in too. So it does, the all of them take into account the PMI. All right. So FHA looks a little tiny bit better than this 3% down or the 5% down. So you may say to me, although this is not the class about this, but I will mention this to you because I think it's important to realize this. So you think to yourself, hey, so why would I ever do a 3% down conventional or a 5% down conventional when I could just do the 3.5% down FHA and it looks better? Think about it. Why Why would you voluntarily take a slightly higher interest rate conventional 3% down or conventional 5% down, loan. when the FHA one has got a little bit lower rate. It's because FHA PMI, the mortgage insurance premium, which they call MIP, but the mortgage insurance premium for FHA never goes away. It stays with you for the full 30 years of the loan, whereas the conventional PMI goes away when you get below 80% loan of value. So you do have a slightly higher effective interest rate on the conventional loans, but it's only for a few years until you pay down the loan below 80% loan to value. And then it drops off. And then the interest rate's probably better. We'd have to go check, see what the the base rates are for those, what what are the rate is without uh, PMI. But that's one of the reasons why you might voluntarily take the higher interest rate for a shorter period of time because you have a little bit of pain up front, but then that goes away without having to refinance out of the loan. Where FHA, you need to either uh, change loans, sell the property, or uh, refinance and get rid of that PMI uh, by doing a different loan type. All right, then continuing on here. So the interest rates then drop off with the more you put down. So it's a little bit less. If you put 10% down, a little bit less, if you put 15% down, a little bit less, if you put 20% down. And then there's a pretty big drop off going from 20% to 25% on the owner-occupant loans. Then a little drop to 30, little drop to 35, Looks like they're pretty much the same going across here to 40 to 50, little drop to 60, maybe the same for 70, and then a little increase for 80, which I think is because the amount you're borrowing is getting smaller. And then the lender's like, hey, look, I want you to, uh, you know, because the loan's so small, we have to charge a little bit more for that. And then it goes up when you get to 90% for what I believe is to be the same reason. I don't know the reasons why these all go up. This is just what they are, okay? Okay. So realize that the curve is not linearly down, it, it, it changes, it changes differently based on how much you're putting down there. Okay, then on the non-owner-occupant ones, we have a really high interest rate for the 15% down, it drops off pretty significantly when you go from 15% to 20%, and it drops off pretty big again from 20% to 25%, and then it has a small decline from 25 to 30 doesn't look like there's a decline from 30 to 35 there does look like there's a decline to 40% though it's pretty small and then it looks like it stays the same all the way through to 70% down then it bumps up where it gets more expensive if you if you put 80% down to 90% down so this is just the interest rate we really haven't talked about like what impact this has on returns i just wanted to show you what is changing on the underlying interest rate as we change down payment amounts all right then because I can, <laughs> oh man, me and my spreadsheets. So because I can in the spreadsheet, I show you, hey, look, I assume you're buying a, I think I did $500,000 property, but you're buying a $500,000 property. And it's, it's very similar to no, regardless of what price you're doing, but this is just a, to kind of give you a, a static snapshot. So I take the interest rate you're getting and I calculate out what your monthly payment would be putting that amount down and getting that particular interest rate. And now I could show you approximately what your monthly payment would be. And you could see the monthly payment for the non-owner occupant, the blue line, is higher than the monthly payment for all of the corresponding uh, owner-occupant ones. So the thought is, if you can get an owner-occupant loan, if you're willing to do no matter how sad, you're gonna have an advantage in monthly payment, which is gonna result in you having slightly higher cash flow with the same strategy, right? So if you do owner-occupant, You get a better loan, you get better monthly payment, so you have better cash flow if you decide to put the same amount down. So in this case, the 0% down ones, they're right here. This is the 3% down loan, which is interesting because the the monthly payment for the 3% down um, conventional financing is really a little tiny bit less than if you had put a full 15% down non-owner occupant. Mind blown. So, you could put 3% down as an owner occupant and have just the tiniest bit lower monthly payment than if you had a 15% down owner, a non owner occupant investor loan, which is crazy to think about. In fact, all of the loans are cheaper than that 15% down non owner occupant, if I'm looking at this right. Okay. All right, FHA loan is a little bit cheaper than the 3% down. Again, for that reason we talked about before. The 5% down is cheaper than the 3% down. And then this is the 10% down. Uh, and the 10% down, putting 10% down as an owner-occupant seems to have slightly better mortgage payment than if you put 20% down as an investor. You put half as much down, 10%, if you're willing to move into the property, live there for a year, then convert the property to a rental. Or if you're willing to buy a, you know, a house hack, and you're willing to live in the property and do that there. Okay. So that's kind of interesting. Then there's 50% down. So you can just see how these go until eventually you get down to putting hundred percent down. The payments are both zero. Okay. And these do include PMI. So it's principal interest and the PMI payment. Okay. All right. I think that's all I had to say about this chart. Then this shows you if we have Two, if we have an owner-occupant loan and a non-owner-occupant loan with the same down payment percentage, for example, we don't have non-owner-occupant loans, investor loans, for less than 15% down. So we can't compare, you know, 0% down, 3% down, 3.5% down, and 5% down, and 10% down. But we do have a 15% down loan for both the owner-occupant and for the investor loans. And so now I can show you just the pure dollar amount difference between these two loan payments, if you got an owner occupant and a non owner occupant. And so for foot and 15% down, the monthly payment difference, which is also, by the way, probably the difference in cash flow, the improvement in cash flow, it's $500 better if you put 15% down to be an owner occupant than to be in a non owner occupant. So, in other words, there's a $509.68 according to this. Of course, your interest rates will vary, so it'll be different, but about $500 difference. In cash flow and monthly payment, if you decide to do the uh, owner occupant version of this strategy versus the non owner occupant, that's a pretty big incentive. You know, if you want to improve cash flow, if you're in a market where it's really hard to make things cash flow, this could be a difference. This could be a difference maker. I mean, it's $500 difference putting 15% down. If you put 20% down, it's about $350 different. So it'll be $350 better. If you put 20% down as an owner occupant versus putting 20% down as an investor, for putting 25% down, it's $357 different. For putting 30% down, it's 331. For putting 35% down, it's 332. For putting 40% down, it's 282. For putting And these are getting smaller. The differences are getting smaller with the more you put down, with the exception of being 80%, which, you know, for all I know, there could be some really weird, wacky, you know, kind of thing that happened when you're doing that. So the overall trend, though, is the more you put down, the smaller these differences are going to be in monthly payments, which you'd almost expect anyway because you're borrowing less. So you'd expect the differences to kind of scale that way anyway. Okay. So you can see now this difference between non-owner-occupant and owner-occupant and the impact that putting different down payments has on how much you'll have in cash flow. Pretty significant. All right. So we talked about this idea that return in dollars is different than return on investment. So we're going to first start by looking at return in dollars for a variety of down payments. And remember before, I told you about the four different areas of return. You have appreciation. The tendency for property values to increase over time. You have depreciation, which are those tax benefits of owning a rental property. You have cash flow, which is all the income you have on the property minus all the expenses, including your, um, you know, principal and interest, your mortgage payment, your taxes, your insurance, your vacancy, your management, your maintenance. All of those things get subtracted out. So this is really true cash flow after all expenses. And then you have your debt pay down, how much you paid down on the loan during whatever period we're measuring here, usually a year. Okay. So you have those four areas of return appreciation, depreciation, cash flow, and debt pay down. And each one is shown on this chart using a different color. So appreciation is blue, depreciation is yellow, cash flow is green, and debt pay down is red. You'll notice they also match the colors we typically use when we talk about the return quadrants, because these are the returns in the return quadrants that we talked about. All right. Now, what I did here is I showed you the amount. It's an annual amount from year one, assuming you can rent the property in year one, which Technically, you can't rent an owner-occupant property in year one because it's an owner-occupant property unless you're renting, you know, getting tenants in there and it happens to be the same amount you're getting for a regular rent. But it shows you the amount, annualized return, and I'm using year one just to make the math simpler. And it shows you all the different loan types. Right here is the cutoff, right here is the cutoff between owner-occupant and then these to the right of here are investor. So you could see where they kind of like change pattern abruptly. That's where it changes from owner-occupant loans. These are all the owner-occupant loans and these are all the investor loans. And so I show you the down payment amounts. So these are the two zero percent down ones. This is 3% down, 3.5% down, 5% down, 10, 15, 20, 25, all the way up to 100% down. And then we switch back over to investor, uh, 15%, 20%, 25, whatever it is to get through all theirs. Okay? All right. So this is what we're talking about now. So you got all these loan programs here and it shows you the returns we're getting for various things. So one of the things I want to point out is what varies and what stays the same. I kind of covered this during the intro, but I'm going to cover it again here because you can see these charts and they look really busy. It's hard to tell exactly what's going on. So here's what is changing and what's the same. So first of all, what stays the same? What stays the same is appreciation. The property value is going up that amount no matter what you put down on it. And then depreciation. The tax benefits you get from owning that rental property are the same no matter how much you put down, okay? So that's these two over here. And it shows you the dollar amount is the same no matter what loan program you got. It looks like in this particular case on about a $500,000 property, which I believe is what I use for this, it's about $18,000 a year in benefit from that first year. And about $15,000 of it is appreciation, is the the property value we're estimating is going up about 3% a year. It's about keeping pace with inflation, if you think of it that way, on a $500,000 property. And then here's the depreciation benefit, the tax benefits of owning this rental property, the cash flow from the appreciation, how much we're getting there. And you can see that difference there, okay, about three grand or so. All right. Now, what changes? Well, depending on how much you put down, it varies how much you pay down on that loan, and depending on how much you put down, it varies how much cash flow you're getting. And so you can see that there's a whole bunch of these early on where you're putting 0% down or 3% down, or 3%, 3.5% down or 5%, 10% or 15% down, or even 20% down for the owner-occupant ones where you'd have negative cash flow with the property that I picked. In your market, it may be positive, but you're more likely to have negative cash flow the less you put down. Think of it this way. What is cash flow? Well, what is negative cash flow? Rather, negative cash flow is really a deferred down payment. If you had put a hundred percent down, you wouldn't have the negative cash flow, right? But a hundred percent down in the property, then you don't have a mortgage on it. The property would cash flow probably. You put ten percent down, the property probably still cash flows. You put twenty percent down, I'm sorry, you put ninety percent down, the property still cash flows. You put eighty percent down, the property still cash flows. But the less and less you put down, the less and less your cash flow is likely to be. And so you get to the point where you put a little down and you probably start having negative cash flow. So, what is that negative cash flow? That negative cash flow is a down payment that you did not make. You're almost making the down payments monthly that you should have made to have positive cash flow. So, negative cash flow is really a deferred down payment. You're making the down payment that you should have made to have positive cash flow to begin with, but you're making it monthly. That's what negative cash flow is. Okay. So if you put nothing down, you have a certain amount of negative cash flow that if you had put a lot more down, you wouldn't have had. So you could see here, though, how much in dollars the negative cash flow is on these properties. And then you could see how much you have in debt pay down. And you tend to have a larger amount in debt pay down with the less you put down. You put down zero down. Put nothing down on a property, you tend to have a larger amount of debt pay down. And this sort of makes sense, right? If you're paying off all these loans over a 30 year time period, if you put less down, you have more that you need to pay off over that same period. So you got to be paying more off in order to pay it down. And the amount that you pay down actually does vary a little bit with interest rate. So the interest rate comes into play here too, because the higher your interest rates, the less you are paying down in debt pay down. Okay. All right. So you can see over time that this kind of changes. And in the owner-occupant one, it goes it goes slightly positive cash flow, somewhere between 20% down and 25% down. In this example, your, your city will be different. Your analysis will be a little bit different if you did this analysis for yourself. Okay. So I just did this for a prototypical property just to show you how this works. So you see over time, the amount you're paying in debt pay down goes down a little bit until finally you're paying down hundred percent here. And then when you get down to this 15% down loan, I think there's something wacky going on with this 100. I must have had it mislabeled or something, so ignore that one. So the 15% down one, though, you're pretty significant negative cash flow. And then 20%, 25%, 30% down, um, it takes you a little bit more than 30% down. As a non-owner occupant in this particular example, in order for you to have positive cash flow. And we didn't apply any of the like ADH strategies to improve cash flow on this particular one. We just pull the property out and I just use some really rough numbers. Okay. So you kind of get a feel though of how this works. But eventually, as you start putting more and more down, the amount of cash flow you have increases and the amount you're paying on debt actually goes down when you do that. All right. So this shows you a zoomed in version of that appreciation and depreciation one where the returns are the same. No matter how much you put down, the the dollar amount of returns from appreciation, and the dollar amount of returns from depreciation are exactly the same. And then these are the ones for the cash flow and debt pay down just zoomed in so you can see them a little bit better, okay? And again, this is the dollar amount of return, okay? I mean, I could talk about some of this stuff for hours. So I'm gonna I'm going to save myself going off on these really long tangents because you can see that the... Like if you add up the negative part and the positive part, you can see that this is probably net negative. And you can probably see over here, these are probably net positive, but the amount you're getting overall increases when you do this. So I don't know, it's kind of interesting. Just definitely some interesting stuff to look at here. All right, so we've talked about this idea of return in dollars. Now we're going to say, what is the return on what we had to invest in order to get that dollar amount, right? So the return on investment. And so this shows you the return on investment. How many dollars we had in appreciation, how many dollars we had in depreciation, how many dollars we had in cash flow, how many dollars we had in paying down a loan divided by how much we had to invest in order to get that deal. So if we had to invest, you know, nothing down plus some closing costs, you could see that there. If we had to invest, you know, 50% down in order to get those, you could see those there. And you'll notice what happens is when we have very little in the deal, like 0% down plus some closing costs, you'll see that the returns look really, really, really high, right? Like the return here, um, not including cash flow, because cash flow is negative, is over 500% for the two nothing down loan programs. If you subtract out whatever oops, subtract out whatever the negative ones here, you no, know, it's probably in the 350% return range. 350% return on investment by putting nothing down the deal. That's pretty phenomenal. And, and you're putting nothing down the deal, but you have some closing costs, which is why it's not infinite. For those that are wondering why it's not infinite, okay? Then you have this 3.5% down or 3% and 3.5% down. And those are still pretty significant, you know, probably pushing over 100% uh, before you have the negative cash flow here. But you can kind of see those returns, but it's really hard to see what's going on here. So in order to make it easier to see what's going on with all of these other ones, I'm gonna remove anything less than 15% down. So this is the same exact chart showing you the return on investment return amount, the percentage return on investment for each of the four different areas. But now I've removed anything less than 15% down so that we could see what's going on with those. They were just compressed before and it was really hard to see. So now I'm going to show you what's happening with the 15% down. So here's what we've got going on. And I'm going to just use one or two examples here. So on the 15% down, owner occupant, you're moving into the property. You've got some negative cash flow here. The negative cash flow return looks like it's about negative 7% return. On what you had to put down. So if you put 15% down plus some closing costs, you have negative cash flow on this property at about negative 7% of the return of the amount you had to put into the deal in order to do that. However, on from appreciation, you've got probably about positive 18% return. And the return from depreciation, I don't know, it looks like it's just eyeballing it here. It looks like it's probably in the plus 5%. And then the amount you're paying down on uh debt pay down is probably in that uh I don't know six percent or so return. So you have all of these returns that are positive, and then this cash flow, which is a little bit negative here. Now it's important to realize a couple of things. There's a reason why I separate out these four returns as different, because they have different characteristics. As one example, appreciation. Are you guaranteed to get three percent appreciation each year? No, you're not. You could get more than three percent. No, there have been several years in the last five years or so where appreciation has exceeded 3% in the overwhelming majority of the U.S. markets by a lot, right? More than 3% per year. But are there years where property values do not go up? Or maybe even just your property does not go up in value? Absolutely. Can you have a year where property values go down, where appreciation is negative? 100%. You totally could have years where your property value does not go up. Okay, so appreciation is not a guaranteed return. It's a speculative return, right? We're speculating that the market will improve and we're estimating what that might be in the future looking forward. And you give me a long enough time horizon, I'm telling you, it's probably gonna be around 3% looking back at the 100 plus years of history we have on how much properties appreciate in the United States. It's about what inflation has been, about 3%. Okay, so you give me a long enough time horizon, I'm telling you, it's gonna be about that. Might your property in particular be a little bit better or a little bit worse? Sure. Might a certain market perform a little bit better or a little bit worse? Sure. Okay. But it is speculative in nature. It is not guaranteed. So this return, even though it's nice and big on here, is a somewhat questionable return. We don't really know. Now, what about this yellow area, this depreciation, the tax benefits of owning a rental property? Does it matter how the market does? as to how much depreciation you get. No, it doesn't. It's a tax benefit set by tax code. So unless the tax code changes, which does happen occasionally, but this one's been around for a while, and so what's the best evidence that something will continue? How long it's it's continued in the past? Not saying that it can't change, but it's likely, I'd say better than likely, highly likely, that you're likely gonna get this return. So the depreciation return, It's probably a pretty sure thing. Not guaranteed, but closer to guaranteed. As long as tax code doesn't change, you're probably going to get that. So that one is a good return there. What about this red return from debt paydown? Is debt paydown reliant on the market doing well? Does the market have to go up in value for you to get the debt paydown portion of your return? No, if you make the mortgage payments as agreed upon with your lender, if you don't default, you're getting that return. It's contractual. It's as close to guaranteed as you can get without there being a third party guaranteeing, it, right? It's contractual. You have an obligation to make those payments to the lender. They have an obligation to accept those payments from you. And if you pay down that amount of money, you're gonna keep the loan. You're gonna get that return on the property. That's how much you're gonna pay down the loan because that's just how the contract is set up, okay? So it's a contractual obligation you have for debt pay down. So that's not that speculative. It's pretty certain. Now returns, let's talk about like when you get these returns. So appreciation, the property value goes up by 3%. It goes up by $12,000 in the first year or $15,000 in the first year. Do you get to pocket that money? No. Unless you sell the property or unless you do a cash out refinance, that is money that's sort of like being deferred until you collect it later. It's what I call uh, cash later. What about cash? What about the depreciation benefit? the tax benefits you get from owning this rental property. Do you get that right away? Yes, you get it in that year. You get it on your tax return. And honestly, you can adjust the your exemptions on your paycheck and you could get it monthly or weekly with your paycheck. You could say, look, I know I'm getting this at the end of the year. Let me go to my job and adjust my exemptions so that I'm being taxed less because I know at the end of the year, I'm getting this big block back from owning this rental property. I'll just take it in with my paycheck instead. I'll pay less taxes in because I know that at the end of the year I'm not going to have to pay taxes because I've got this benefit coming to me at the end of the year. So you can even adjust it up and get it weekly with your paychecks or bi-weekly or monthly, whatever your paycheck period is. Okay. So you could do that. So some of these are returns later, some of them are returns now. Some of them are speculative and kind of like dependent on the market, which cash flow is also another one that's speculative, dependent on the market. And some of them are cash later or are are not speculative. They're more guaranteed, more certain, okay? So you can see that all these returns are not the same. So you may prioritize some returns over other returns when you're thinking about these and making these investments, all right? All right, so we got these couple different returns here and you can see kind of like how the numbers vary over time that the return on investment varies a lot depending on how much you put down, but you may go from having this negative cash flow. Having this positive cash flow, and even though the return overall is lower, the return from cash flow is positive here. It's negative here, and negative here. Small and negative down here, and a twenty-five percent down. Okay, and you can see how they compare to the investor loans versus the non-investor loans, the owner occupant versus the non-owner occupant loans here. So, for example, a twenty-five percent down looks like the returns about I don't know eighteen percent here for twenty-five percent down for the non-owner occupant. It looks like it's about. 18 minus whatever this is, so minus like three or so, so probably about 15. So it's a little bit less as a return on investment by doing the investor loan for 25% down as an example. Okay, all right. These are just the returns for the ones that are variable. I'm sorry, for the ones that are fixed. So the appreciation and depreciation, the, the dollar amount doesn't change, but now that the return, uh, the amount that you had to invest in order to get those varies. Now you can see that the fixed dollar amount returns are still varying once you put money down so that you can see how those change, okay, over time. And then these are the ones that are variable based on the loan to begin with, and they're variable based on how much you put into the deal. So for example, you put 30% down here, you can see you have the return just from cash flow and debt pay down is pushing, you know, high 4%. But it doesn't get really, really crazy for the majority of these, right? It's still sub 5% for all these. It just changes which one you're taking the return in. This is sort of my idea of deal alchemy. Do you want to move your return from debt pay down to cash flow? Well, you put more down, you can get less debt pay down, and you're going to get more cash flow. But the return is largely similar, right? It's not varying a lot, varying a little, but not a lot varies more over here with your non-owner occupant. The return actually goes up overall with your non-owner occupant one, okay? And you can see how all that plays out. All right, so in conclusion, pretty cool stuff, right? Interest rates vary based on owner occupant and non-owner occupant, pretty significantly. Interest rates vary based on the loan program, which makes sense to you, right? You know, doing VA loan versus USDA loan, loan program changes a little bit. Interest rates vary based on down payment amount, which I think is surprising for a lot of folks. Some dollar returns vary depending on how much you put down. So you put more down, you get more cash flow. You put more down, you get less debt pay down. Others don't. doesn't matter how much you put down, your appreciation, the dollar amount of appreciation is going to be the same. doesn't matter how much you put down, the dollar amount from depreciation, the tax benefits of owning the rental property are going to be the same. And not all returns are the same. Each return type has different characteristics. Some are speculative. Some are not speculative. Some are cash now. Some are cash later. So some have different tax rates. Some have the other tax rates. The time you take take to learn about these differences, to understand them and apply what you learn to your own situation is worth doing. You should go ahead and take the time and think about this stuff and think about what makes sense for you, what your goals are and how to do that. Okay. If you need help applying this, that's what we do in the coaching stuff. So go ahead and reach out about doing that. All right, that's it. This has been James Orr. hope you've enjoyed this class. I certainly did. Um, I think we should do an advanced version at some point in the future. If you think we should, go ahead and reach out and let me know. We can go ahead and do those. And uh, this has been James Orr. Have a great day. Bye-bye for now. With home prices up, mortgage interest rates up, and rents up, but not quite enough to counteract the higher prices and interest rates. Cash flow on rental properties in Seattle is harder than ever. Book a call with the Real Estate Financial Planner to apply our proprietary 88 strategies to improve cash flow on your rentals. See the show notes for a link to schedule your call and improve your cash flow today. If you're a real estate agent, lender, or professional in Seattle that wants to help our real estate investor listeners,